say good morning. If you are new or visiting, we haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Chris. Good to be one of your pastors here. If you're watching uh, online or uh, in the house with us, so glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, if you are new or newer to New Life, you picked a uh, really a perfect time to be here, right? We launch into a, a new year, and, and today we're actually launching into a brand new uh, sermon series. It's probably going to carry us um, at least to Easter and maybe a little bit uh, beyond Easter as well. I'm not sure quite yet. Um, but I've been excited about this particular series for, for a couple uh, of months now as I've uh, been studying and preparing for it. Um, and so for, for the next 12 weeks or so, here's, here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be digging into what is arguably the most famous, the most well-known, controversial sermon ever preached. It's been called the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. The Sermon on the Mount is the most in-depth, longest recorded sermon that we have from Jesus. In fact, this sermon covers all of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in this sermon, Jesus describes in glorious detail this upside-down kingdom of his. A kingdom that is so countercultural, uh, so contrary to our human nature that it it tends to either be uh, beloved by some and reviled by others. Uh, Anne Rand, you, many of you uh, maybe have read some of her books, atheist author, philosopher, once said that the prescriptions found in this sermon preached by Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, this is what she said, they are the vilest prescriptions ever uttered. She regarded Christian morality as, and I quote, a poison. Gandhi, on the other hand, read the sermon and remarked, it went, it went straight to my heart. And so I don't know, as we go through this, if you'll find this to be a, a poison to your soul or whether it's a soothing balm to your soul, but I think one thing that is for sure is you won't be able to ignore the words of Jesus. They're provocative. They're life-changing. They're challenging to the core of who we are and what we value as human beings in this world. And so I just kind of want you to know from the outset that this is a very divisive teaching and has been historically, both in the church and outside the church. And so why would we spend the first quarter, the first three months of a brand new year carefully unpacking something that has been so controversial for 2,000 years? And here's why. I love a fight and I love angry emails. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. That's not, that's not why. Here's why. We, we want to go deeper as apprentices of Jesus here. We want to go deeper. Listen, I don't know about you guys, but I, I've had my fill through my life of just coming to a building for an hour on Sunday morning and singing a few feel-good songs and listening to an entertaining talk and then going home and just living life as usual. Like, what, what ultimate good does that do for any of us? Now, if you're new here, you, you may not know this, but our definition of what a disciple of Jesus is here at New Life comes straight from the words of Jesus, right out of Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. It's the chapter that precedes the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is beginning to call his disciples. And he said in Matthew chapter 4, 19, come follow me, and I will make you disciples of men. And from that, we derive our definition of what a disciple of Jesus is. And it's kind of like what we call a disciple triangle. So if you could just imagine in your mind a triangle, we say a disciple of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus, someone who is being changed by Jesus, and someone who is living on mission with Jesus, right? That's what being a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus is. Someone who is following him, someone who is being changed by him, and someone who is living on mission with him. And I believe that the Sermon on the Mount will help us in our task of becoming more like Jesus, becoming an apprentice of Jesus. 
Now, one just, I think, massively important disclaimer before we dive in uh, to this sermon for the next however many weeks is that the principles that we encounter in this great sermon from Jesus are, listen, and I want you to hear me say this, they are not ways to live in order to get into the kingdom of God. I want you to hear me say that. Like, this is not a works-based, like, hey, if you follow this formula, then, then you'll be good enough or you'll be moral enough to then be accepted by God. This is not a way into the kingdom. This is a way that the men and women who are already a part of the kingdom of Jesus ought to live. And there's a huge difference between those two things. So I don't want you to walk out of this message this morning or this series in March or whenever we wrap it up and say, man, uh, Chris has really been preaching like this moralistic, therapeutic deism where we're supposed to work our way or earn our way into the kingdom. That is not the message of Jesus at all. And so I, I just want you to know that from the outset. Let me set the table for us with a question this morning. And this is just a self-reflective question. I'm just gonna ask it. I want you to just kind of let the, let the answer settle in your mind for, for you. What makes you happy? So just think about that for a minute. And be honest with yourself. What makes you happy? It is, a, is, it a, uh, is it a person? If you're married, you better look at your spouse right next to you. Is it a person? Is it uh, a hobby? Is it an experience, a place somewhere in the world that you've been? Is it a memory? Is it, is it a, a food or a drink that brings you joy? What is it for you? So just let that land for a minute, and once you have that locked in, we'll move on. What's it for you? And for me, as I was kind of thinking about this question for myself, and a couple of images came to my mind. One was like a, a warm fire crackling in a fireplace in a cold winter's night, right? Just kind of snuggled up by that fire or maybe taking a walk on the beach as the sun sets with my baby mama and my kids, you know? I love that. Maybe a perfectly seared medium rare steak side of roasted asparagus perfectly seasoned. Praise Jesus. Right, what, what, what is that for you? Like, what's that one thing that just kind of takes you to your happy place? And whatever it is for you, I think maybe for a moment anyway, we ought to step back and just ask the question, how's that going for you? <laughs> how's that working out? Are you, are you happy? Re I mean, really and truly, are you happy? Like, deeply happy, like, soul level satisfied in your life. Because here's what I know, without even knowing many of you who are in the room or certainly those who are watching online, the entire human race is on a happiness quest. Man, man we are all searching for that elusive thing that fully and finally fills that, what I call the hole in the soul that we, that we all have. And so whether it's career achievement or maybe you're a student, so it's like academic achievement or or wealth acquisition, or golf, or hunting, or fishing, or whatever your thing is, we are all living in pursuit of happiness. And I think the, the thing that the Sermon on the Mount really challenges us in is that, man, man could, it, could it be, the question we have to ask after hearing the teaching of Jesus is, could, could it be that everything that we're looking for happiness in is actually an illusion of sorts? Not that those things don't exist, but that those things can't give us what they promised to give us. Now hear me say this, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with golf or a good steak or a 
successful career or a, a great sex life with your spouse or a fire on a cold night. And, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But, but could it be that the way to happiness is not some new achievement or new experience? Could it be that the way to happiness is actually quite old? Could it be that the pathway to happiness is actually found in a sermon that Jesus preached on a mountain 2,000 years ago right outside of Jerusalem? I believe that it is. So let me just set the stage for you. By the time we get to chapter 5 where Jesus launches into this most famous sermon Jesus is now rock star Jesus right so he's no longer sort of uh, hidden from everybody he's been feeding the hungry he's been healing the sick he's been preaching these astonishing sermons with great authority in ways like nobody had ever heard before like he's the guy that everybody wants to be around like everybody wants to get the selfie with Jesus and so the the crowds are just forming around he's the guy that you want to be around like he's the guy that when your dog dies he resurrects it and when your cat dies he helps you bury it like he's just he's there for you and with you constantly always so he's got this huge massive crowds that are with him following everywhere he goes and and he's just kind of like this local rock star and so matthew 5 tells us that he, the crowds have formed again and so he treks up on this mountain and he sits down and his disciples gather around him and then the crowds follow in behind him and he opens this most famous of sermons with a little section, we just sung it actually, called the Beatitudes. Eight marks. Eight marks of those who live in this upside down kingdom of Jesus. Eight tenets of a new way of life for new citizens of a new kingdom. And he actually begins each tenet or each uh, 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 truth, if you will, with the word blessed. The word blessed, which is kind of, kind of a weird word for us, right? Like we don't really use that word in our culture it sounds kind of churchy kind of religious-y and uh, like you know we don't go into our favorite starbucks and take a sip of our coffee and say to our barista that was a blessed cup of coffee or you know like our babe that meal that you made last night blessed it was awesome like we just we don't we don't talk like that anymore so we can read stuff like this and it just it kind of misses the mark or like man what does that even what does that even mean it just feels kind of weird but that word blessed is actually the greek word makarios which literally it just means happy it just means happy. That's all it means. It means happy, fortunate, well off, like a deep and abiding sense of happiness. And so as we go through this teaching of Jesus and we hear him say over and over again the word blessed, don't think, oh, that's some kind of old, weird, like, like King James Version, old school church. Just, just think happy. That's, that's what that word means, okay? So let's start together. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have all this up on the screens for you. This is, our author is, is Matthew, who is actually one of the 12, one of the disciples of Jesus, who recorded the life and teachings of Jesus for us. So he was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus and uh, the, obviously the teaching of Jesus. And he records this for us, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, a couple of things before we dive into the actual sermon. A couple things going on here. Jesus goes up onto this mountain, more than likely on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. I've actually stood on this mountain myself and went to Israel back in the, in the late 90s, and it's, and it's stunning, right? Like, I don't know what you view when you, or what you picture when you think about the Middle East or Israel, but this area of Israel is lush. I mean, it, it, it's like a garden. It's green. There's wildlife everywhere. There are birds singing. The, there's a, a crystal glass sea. It's 
far as the eye can see. It's beautiful. It's stunning. And so Jesus climbs up in this most beautiful place to preach this most incredible sermon, and he sits down while his disciples stand, which is kind of weird for us, right? But you have to understand that in in those days, rabbis would actually sit down to teach while the listeners stood. Now, Now, we've sort of messed it up today where you guys sit, and I've got to stand the entire time, right? But, but, but in this culture, this was the position of, a, of authority, right? So anybody that was an authoritative figure in that day, they had something to say, they would sit and the listeners would stand up. For, for us, it's completely re- reversed, right? Professors stand up when they lecture in a classroom. Presidents stand at the podium to give a national address. Standing is now seen as the position of authority. So you guys are off the hook. I was born in the wrong century. But in those days, Jesus got to sit down to preach the sermon. Everybody else stood up. Now, notice also that there are two groups of people present when Jesus begins to teach. Did you notice that? His disciples and the crowds. Now, let me ask you a question. Who do you think the sermon is for? It's for both of them. (laughs) It's for both groups, right? He's specifically teaching his disciples. But I think Jesus would have viewed this teaching as an invitation to the crowd, right? So it's instructive for the disciples, and it's invitational to the crowd. Now, no, no doubt, uh, we have both groups as well here and online every single Sunday as well. Disciples and the crowds. Those who are inside the family of Jesus as well as those who are here just out of uh, curiosity or obligation or exploration, whatever the reason might be. So the invitation for you this morning and as we go through this sermon over the course of the next 12 or so weeks is the same. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this should be instructive for you. Now, if you're on the outside of this whole family of faith looking in, see it as an invitation from Jesus into a brand new way of life. All right, so the stage is set. Let's dive right into it. Starting in verse three, Jesus begins to teach and he says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. This seems Totally counterculture to everything that our world would say. He's saying, happy are those who know they bring nothing to the table spiritually. Happy are those who look into their spiritual bank account and realize they don't have enough funds to get themselves out of trouble and buy themselves into the good graces of God or to get into his kingdom. So let me, let me just kind of frame it this way as we walk through it. So this is a well frame it. We'll call it Jesus' Roadmap to Happiness, right? So just give you one truth for every beatitude. Number one is this. Happy are those who realize they are spiritually bankrupt. Happy are those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt. The opposite, by the way, of everything our world tells us. Right? Have you listened to the messaging of our day in our culture? All our world tells us is, you're good enough. You're good enough. Just be you. Just believe in you. Just follow your own heart. Be true to yourself. You are enough. And Jesus looks at us with love in his eyes and he says, no, you're not. (laughs) No, you're not enough. You are never enough. You're bankrupt spiritually. You're broken. You're separated from a perfect and holy God by your rebellion and your sin. You live without hope in this life or the one to come apart from me. The world says, no, no, you're, 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 it's, the, it's the happy, it's the confident, it's the proud, it's the arrogant, it's those who have it all together. 
What I've discovered is most often the people that seem like they have it most together have it least together when you get a peek behind the curtains of their lives. Being poor in spirit means having a recognition that you are utterly insufficient to save yourself. Being poor in spirit means that you have a recognition that you are utter, utterly and completely insufficient to save yourself. Jesus says, these are the people, these are the people that the kingdom belongs to. Not the proud, not the self-confident, not the self-assured, not the I've got it all together people. No, no, no. In my kingdom, it's the poor in spirit. And so maybe let me, let me just ask you, do you, this morning, do you recognize your spiritual poverty before a perfect and holy God? Do you see yourself as spiritually destitute with no way to earn right standing before the Father? Are you trusting in your own strength and your own intellect and your own ability? Because Jesus says, that's not the way you accomplish anything in my kingdom. Happy are those who realize they are spiritually bankrupt. And he continues on in verse four. He says, blessed, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, this is one of the Beatitudes I think probably most of us have, have heard. It Maybe if this is even your first time in a church, you've probably heard this, like at a funeral or something like that. That's not actually what Jesus is talking about. That's a little bit out of context. He's not saying, hey, those who cry a lot when they watch sad movies or when their pet dies, they're gonna be comforted, although he does comfort us in our sorrow. What he's saying is this, happy are those who mourn over their sin and the effects of sin in the world. Happy are those who mourn over their, their own sinful state of their heart and the, the effects of that sin on the world around them. They will be comforted. Happy are those who grieve over their brokenness. And so let me just ask you, friend, does your sin break your heart? Maybe let me ask it another way. Don't answer this out loud, but what's the predominant sin in your life right now? Like, what's that one thing that you just... It just keeps popping up, man, and you thought it would be over with by now, and whatever it is for you. I'm guessing it just popped right into your mind, like you don't even have to think about it much. Does it grieve you? Does that, does that break your heart? Or you just kind of shrug your shoulders and like, ah, this is just, this is just who I am, just the way it is. I've told this story before, but one of the ways that I knew things had changed, that things were different for me when I gave my life to Christ as a young man is that my, my sin started to grieve me. Like I started, I started to hate my sin instead of celebrate my sin. So let me just ask you, does, does your sin grieve you? Does it break your heart? Because this is the opposite of everything our culture tells us to do, Right? Our culture tells us to do everything we can to avoid grief, right? We, we, we stuff it down, we, we push it away, we drown it out with Spotify and Netflix and numb scrolling through reels on Insta or whatever it is. We don't sit with our tears anymore. We aren't grieved any longer by our own sin, the brokenness of our world. But Jesus says, and this is number two, happy are those who grieve over sin and brokenness. Happy are those who grieve over sin and brokenness. 
Now, what's the promise? Now, you'll notice he gives us kind of a statement of truth and then a promise that goes along with it. What's the promise for this one? They'll be what? They'll be comforted. Comforted by what? By the cleansing and the forgiveness of Jesus by the fact that he's making all things new, the promise that he will one day return to wipe away every tear and right every wrong in a new heavens and a new earth, fully restored, perfect in whole. It's quite the promise for those who live in his kingdom. Verse five, he continues on. He says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, one point of clarity here, meek does not mean weak. So if you've kind of grown up and you've associated those two words, like, hey, meekness is weakness, that's just not true. Here's my, here's my definition and my stab at what meekness is. Meekness is gentle strength and submission to something greater than self. Meekness is gentle strength and submission to something greater than self. It's humble. It's lowly self-forgetfulness, humble strength. Now, doesn't the world tell us, hey, uh, those, those who conquer, those will inherit the earth. Those who fight for their rights, those who demand what they're owed, those who take no prisoners, those who take by force, those who climb the corporate ladder, stepping on others as necessary on the way up, they will inherit the earth. And Jesus says, not in my kingdom. Uh-uh, not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, it's the meek, those who possess humble strength in submission to, to Jesus, those who say to Jesus, not my will be done, but your will be done. So I don't, have to, I don't have to fight for my agenda. I don't have to push to be recognized. I don't have to fight for my place or my position in this world. I can humbly rest in the God who is good and who fights on my behalf. There's freedom in this, friend. There's freedom in living in meekness, not in arrogance or self-promotion. So we might say it this way, number three. Happy are those, happy are those who live in humble submission to something greater than themselves. Happy are those who live in humble submission to something that's greater than themselves. Again, opposite of everything we hear in our world where it's fight for your rights, it's all about you, self-care, all about number one, making sure everybody respects you and you get everything that you're owed and everything that you deserve and people honor you and people will respect you. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not, that, that's not what I'm about. I'm about those, those who will walk in my kingdom or those who are meek. Those who live in humble submission to something that's greater than themselves. Those who realize it's not about them. These will inherit the earth. Meaning the presence of Jesus now and then I believe also the new heavens and the new earth and the age to come when Jesus comes again. Where we will reign and rule with him in a world that's fully restored and made whole. Verse 6 goes on. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Now, I'm guessing for most of you, you've, you've experienced hunger or thirst or some combination of both. What, what happens when you get hungry or thirsty? What do you do? You eat or you drink, right? It, it drives you, it drives you to action. Now, for sure, you can ignore it for a little while, but if you ignore it long enough, days, weeks, months, you die. Same thing spiritually, right? Hunger and thirst, these are, these are natural longings and cravings that don't go away until they're satisfied. 
And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, listen, long for, crave for righteousness the way that you long for, the way that you crave, crave food or drink. Like if you got lost in the woods for a week, somebody rescues you, you mean you haven't had a bite of food, you haven't had a, a drop of water, just imagine that, that feeling. Jesus is saying, man, man, long for me and my kingdom in that way. Focus your appetites on that which will truly satisfy you. Because have it, how many of you know that, man, when you eat a great meal, we just got through Thanksgiving and Christmas, and man, how many of you, like me, have had that experience where you just, man, you devour an amazing meal and you sit on the couch miserably full and you say, I will never eat again. I am so full for at least three days, I can't even think about food. And four hours later, what happens? <laughs> where, were those, where were those peanut M&Ms again? <laughs> we're looking, we're hungry again, right? We've got this, this appetite. Jesus goes, hey, listen, take that and apply it to your spiritual life. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, which just means rightness with God. That's what righteousness means, rightness with God. For they shall be satisfied. So let's say it this way. Number four, happy are those who seek satisfaction by longing for God above everything else. Happy are those who, who, who seek satisfaction by longing for God above everything else. Listen, y'all, the world is starving for happiness. And Jesus goes, find satisfaction in pursuit of Christ-likeness, righteousness, the pathways of Jesus, righteous living, upright character, Happy are the people who long and crave to be free from patterns of sin in their life. Those who desire to be holy in their walk. Now, you may have noticed that the first four Beatitudes, the ones that we've just covered, they're, they're more vertical in nature. And the next four that we're about to look at tend to be more um, horizontal in nature. Which makes a lot of sense when you consider that the greatest commandment according to Jesus was what? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So that's the vertical piece of it. And then what's the second part of it? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's the horizontal piece. So it makes sense that he would then pattern the Beatitudes in the, in the same way. So just notice that shift. We move from vertical now to horizontal. Verse seven, he continues on. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In other words, happy are the compassionate. Mercy, you see, is not simply an emotion, it's an action. Mercy is compassion towards those who are suffering. Now, in my experience, most of us, the way we're born, we are, we are high justice, low mercy people. We're high justice, low mercy. Like, we want everyone to get justice, except for us. <laughs> we want everybody else to get justice, but we want mercy for ourselves. I can remember, and I'm ashamed to even tell this story, but it's true. Um, I can remember as a, a middle school punk, um, these were my BC days, before Christ days, and I remember after football practice one day, uh, one of my teammates' moms was taking us home. We stopped at the gas station to get a snack, and I had the brilliant idea that I was gonna steal something. And so I'm not gonna tell you what it was, but I grabbed something I looked, made sure the attendant wasn't looking, and I, and I stuffed it in my pants, and I grabbed something else, and I walked to the front to pay for it. And the, the gentleman looked at me, and he said, son, are you gonna pay for what you just put in your pants? <laughs> and I said, God, 
man, I'm going to start my prison uh, career very early, you know, 13 years old. And, and I said, no, sir. And uh, I took it out and laid there. And he, he said, son, look at me. If you ever steal from me again, I'm going to call your parents and I'm going to call the police. But I'm going to show you mercy and I'm going to let you off the hook this time. And he let me go. Now, he gave me, he gave me mercy when I deserved justice. And in that moment, I felt incredible relief and gratitude towards that man. Like, he gave me what I didn't deserve. Like, you should have punched me in the face and drug me in the back and put zip ties on my hands and called the police and called my parents so they could kick me around before the police took me to juvie, right, or something like that. He showed me mercy. He showed me grace. And so we all want that. Like, we want mercy for ourselves, but we tend to want justice for everybody else. Right, that, that dude that wronged you at the office, you're like, man, I, God, I hope he gets fired and put on welfare. Girl that makes fun of you in middle school, man, I hope she dies in a house fire one day, right? Or guy that broke your heart, cheated on you, man, I hope he dies all alone and lonely in a roach-infested nursing home, right? And don't, listen, don't pretend like you don't have these thoughts either, you bunch of sinners. I can see it all over your face, acting all self-righteous up in here. And listen, the the disciples would have felt the same way. I hope you know that. They were Jews living under the oppression of Rome. Rome had oppressed them, had stolen their money, had raped their women and done all kinds of God-awful things to them. They were looking for justice. In fact, when the Messiah came, they were looking for a military takeover. No doubt, when Jesus sat down, they were thinking, I hope he preaches, let's go smoke these dudes. Let's go get some swords. Let's go make some pipe bomb. Let's go, let's go take this thing over. And instead, what they got was, blessed are the merciful. Crap. It's <laughs> not what I was hoping for. I've been sharpening this sword for 20 years. Blessed are the merciful. Happy are the compassionate. Blessed are those who forgive freely and overlook many offenses. And so let me, let me just ask you, Christian, do you, do you practice mercy? Do you actively look for ways to relieve the suffering of those around you? Because Jesus says, those are the ones who are gonna walk in my kingdom and taste my mercy. So let me just, if I could synthesize it this way. Number five, happy are those who learn to live with compassion goggles on. Happy are those who learn to view the world and view those around them through the lenses of compassion and mercy, not justice in what they're owed. And now Jesus begins to shift and he gives us what I think is maybe the most challenging, certainly in my mind, the most outlandish and provocative beatitude of them all. In verse eight, he says this, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that, and I go, what? A pure heart? Like, who, who among us has a perfectly pure heart? Like, pure thoughts all the time, pure motives, pure actions, pure reactions, pure ambitions. Like, would you just raise your hand if that's you? You have a pure heart so we can all applaud you. Just raise your hand if that's you. Nobody? None of us, not a single one of us. Romans says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all deserving of God's judgment and wrath. 
for Pete's sake. That's why Jesus came, because we don't have pure hearts. Like, we need new hearts. That's precisely what I think Jesus is driving at here. If we don't have pure hearts, how do we get pure hearts? By getting a new heart. Listen, y'all, I, I, don't need some, I don't need some behavior modification so I stop robbing gas stations in my cleats. I need a heart transplant. I don't need to just change my behavior on the outside a little bit so I'm more acceptable to society around me or so that you don't judge me in your, in your heart and mind. Like, I need a brand new heart, one that beats for him and beats for his kingdom instead of self in the world. God knows, man, I don't need another self-help guru to help me discover my inner truth or my inner self or any of that garbage. I need a sovereign king to help me crucify my flesh and give me a brand new heart. Now, this doesn't mean that once we surrender our hearts and our lives to Jesus that we become sinless. God, I wish that was true, but it's not the way it works. But here's what it does mean. Here's what it does mean. It, it means that our desires in life begin to shift. All right? We don't, we don't become perfect, sinless human beings when we step into the kingdom of Jesus. But it does mean that our desires begin to shift. Like the things that we pursued with all of our might and our strength before no longer seem to matter all that much. And things that we never cared about before all of a sudden really, really matter. Relationships, state of our soul, our spiritual life, all those things become front and center. And here's the promise that goes along with that. Jesus says, these, these will see God. These will see God. In other words, these will, they'll know God. Like they'll actually experience relationally experientially the God of this universe. And I think like on some level, whether you're here as an agnostic, Christian, Buddhist, whatever it is, I think ultimately we all desire like to, to know something greater than ourselves, to be connected to something beyond ourselves that's better than that. Like we all desire this at our core level, but this, you gotta understand, this only comes, according to Jesus, with a new heart. And only Jesus can give this new heart. That's the crux of the whole deal, isn't it? And so truth number six, right here from this beatitude is this. Number six, happy are those, happy are those who get a new heart. Happy are those that don't just try to fix up and behavior modify the outside, but those who realize that they need change from the inside out. They don't need some behavior modification. They need a heart transplant. Happy are those who get a new heart when they trust and follow in Jesus and step into his kingdom. Verse 9, he continues, and he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or children of God. Happy are the peacemakers. Now, notice he didn't say peacekeepers. Right? Peacekeepers are those who avoid conflict at all costs. That's not helpful or godly, by the way. Happy are the peacemakers, those who enter into conflict to bring peace and restoration and healing. And listen, guys, in a world that is at war, literally, this is super countercultural. As Americans, in a nation that, at least to me, I don't know about you, increasingly feels divided along political lines and ideological lines, where 
once friends four or five years ago are now hated enemies. Living out this ethic is going to get harder and harder and it's going to be seen as more and more radical in our culture. And I say good. Good. What an opportunity for us as a church. Listen, y'all, especially in an election year, when forces seen and unseen will do exactly what they did last election cycle four years ago, seek to divide us, seek to make us view our neighbors across the street or across the dorm hall as enemies to be destroyed rather than image bearers who need to be restored to their creator. Man, what an opportunity we have to live out this ethic in a way that would be shocking to the world around us. And Jesus says, it's the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. Now, I don't think this should be surprising to us, right? The, the Bible calls God the God of peace. Jesus is referred to oftentimes as the prince of, the prince of peace. The New Testament tells us over and over again that Jesus came to make peace between God and mankind by his blood. So it follows suit that the people of the God of peace would then exhibit that fruit in their lives, right? And so let me maybe just ask you a question. Are you a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Like in your place of employment, your neighborhood, your apartment complex, your dorm facility, whatever, your classroom, what would those who are closest to you say, your spouse, your kids, those who really know you when the mask is off? Are you a peacemaker or are you a troublemaker? Are you always looking for a fight? Are you always trying to engage in an argument? Are you always trying to divide people into your camp against some other camp? Mm. Jesus says, happy are those who practice peace. Number seven, happy are those who practice peace. Let's be peacemakers, y'all, in a world that is anything but peaceful. Verse 10, he continues. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, so you'll notice that the promise that's attached to this is the promise that was attached to the first beatitude, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he's now bringing it back full circle. Now notice this, and this is important for us. Notice that he, he, he's not saying that those who are persecuted for being obnoxious jerks inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying those who are persecuted for being oddly weird will inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying those who are persecuted for following the way of Jesus, righteousness sake. He's saying if you are persecuted for following me, you're happy. How is that, Jesus? I'm being persecuted and you're telling me that that somehow is paradoxically like a pathway to happiness and joy. Like, how does that even make sense? How does that make sense? I think Jesus is saying because you're becoming more like me. Listen, y'all, Jesus wasn't persecuted when he walked the earth because he just went along with the flow. Because he just accepted all the cultural values of the day. Because he just did what everything everybody else was doing he was nailed to a tree because he was different because he was righteous because his teaching and his life reminded people of the darkness of their own hearts and his messianic claims reminded them of their spiritual bankruptcy it was a attack on their ego their pride their self-righteousness 
And so when we walk in the pathway, the ancient pathway of Jesus, should we then be surprised when we taste persecution in our lives? Student, are you, are you mocked in high school for following Jesus? Good. <laughs> You're blessed, Jesus says. This is happiness in Jesus' upside-down kingdom that is totally contrary to the kingdom of the world. Are you ostracized in the workplace because you hold to a different ethic of gender, sexuality, and marriage? Good, Jesus says. You're blessed. You're happy. So you don't get invited to dinner and drinks with everybody else after work's over. That doesn't feel great, does it? Jesus says, good. Good if you're persecuted for my sake and walking in my ways. Did you get passed for a promotion at work because your values align more with the kingdom of Jesus than the company values? Good, you're blessed. Be happy and rejoice because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you, friend. And Jesus expands on this even more as we kind of close out this section of his sermon, verses 11 and 12. He says this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Listen to this. This is our response when this happens. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, they've always persecuted the people of God who walk differently than the world. They've always hated people who value kingdom instead of world. They've always hated people. They've always persecuted these kind of people. So you should expect nothing different in your life. Now listen, friend, we live in a culture in the United States of America in 2024 where we do not yet face physical persecution for following Jesus like so many of our brothers and our sisters do all across the world. But, but you would have to be a fool to not see that the temperature is getting turned up in our culture for those who walk the ancient ways of Jesus. I mean, we've seen this even in the last five or 10 years culturally in America, right? And it, it starts with social pressure. So the drumbeat of our culture is, hey, listen, we'll, we'll cancel you if you don't conform to our value system. Let's cancel culture, right? You, you conform, you bow down to the idol of, of modernity and our sexual ethic of the day, or, or we'll cancel you, right? That's the threat. And if that doesn't work, I... It will move, I predict, and I'm not, not a prophet, but I predict it will move to economic persecution in the days ahead. How, listen, y'all, how, how easy do you think it's gonna be for a, let's say a college professor to get tenured at a prestigious university in the future if they hold to the sexual ethic of Jesus? It's gonna be impossible. It may already be impossible. How easy will it be for someone to be a, a CEO of a Fortune 1000 company if they don't sign off on the value system of the day. Harder and harder. The day is here and increasingly coming. So I think Jesus is just telling us, be prepared. Don't be caught by surprise. Prepare your heart. Prepare your mind for these days. But when that day comes, believer, don't weep over it. Jesus says, rejoice. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for walking in the ancient pathways of Jesus which leads us right to our last one number eight happier those who suffer for following the way of Jesus 
Happy are those who suffer, who experience loss. Friendships, relationships, social clout, financial advancement in the workplace, popularity in high school, whatever it is. Happy are those who suffer, who it cost them something following the way of Jesus. Now here's the key to the whole deal, and we're almost done. The whole point, I think, of the Beatitudes is to show us that this life is impossible apart from grace. It's not possible. Like, I've yet to meet the person that's just born beatitude right? Like, I've yet, I've, yet, I've yet, if that's you, come introduce yourself. I'd love to have coffee sometime, but I've yet to meet that person. Like, I've yet to meet the person that's like, yeah, my Enneagram number is the Beatitudes, right? <laughs> that's not any of us the whole point is you can't do this on your own so this this sermon this teaching from Jesus should serve as a mirror that shows us Jesus who did this perfectly and then I think also as a magnet that draws us into transformation as one commentary writer I read this week said the sermon the one that we just read the sermon is the arrow Jesus is the bullseye The sermon is the arrow. Jesus is the point. He's the destination. He's where we're trying to get, right? This is not a list of moral accomplishments that we need to try to seek out. No, it's as we walk with Jesus and spend time with Jesus and get to know him more, are led by his spirit, these things just become characteristics of our lives more and more. So, how desperate are you for this? as we start a a brand new year, how desperate are you to walk in the kingdom of Jesus? Because this is, according to him, true happiness. Not a fatter 401k or a more vibrant sex life or more entertainment or whatever it is you're chasing. This is true happiness. This is the true ancient pathway to happiness. So if you're here, if you're watching, you're a disciple of Jesus, just know that you have access to this kind of life, not in your own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And if you're here and you're standing outside of the family of faith this morning, I want you to hear the words that you just heard from Jesus as an invitation to you, an invitation into a new kingdom and a new way of life, an ancient pathway to true happiness. Because happiness is not, happiness is not the absence of trouble. Happiness is the presence of Jesus. Let's pray, and then we're going to celebrate taking communion together. God, we, we come to you, and we are grateful for, we're grateful for the fact that you love us. We're grateful for the fact that you call us out of darkness into your kingdom of light. We're grateful even for the challenge of what it means to live in a, a new kingdom and a new ethic, God. We, we recognize that it's not always easy. And in many ways, this is going to make us outcasts in our schools and our neighborhoods and our friend circles and office place. But God, help us to see that we're not going to find our happiness, that we're not going to find soul satisfaction in the approval of men or the acceptance of our peers. That the true ancient pathway to happiness is actually much more narrow than any of that. That it's found in you, Jesus and walking in your ways, counting the cost and rejoicing even when it gets hard. So God, as we step into a brand new year, would you help us do that faithfully? 
And we confess we can't do this in our own strength, in our own might. Like we can't, we just don't have enough willpower. So Holy Spirit, would you be with us? Would you be present when we wake up in the morning, as we go throughout our day, as we lay our heads on our pillows to sleep at night? Would you be with us? Would you help us live out this kingdom ethic of Jesus in a way that is good for us and beautiful to the world around us so that they might see you in us? They might get a a taste of your kingdom right here on planet earth, even in the darkness, even in the sorrow, through us, your children. And we ask and we pray all these things.